Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. Welcome to the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network, keeping you up to speed and entertained in all things tennis. I'm Mitch Michaels, and as always, thank you for listening. Well, the past five U.S. Opens have had no shortage in the drama department, and that was the focus on Tennis Channel Live this week. On the women's side, several first-time major champions emerged and became overnight sensations at Flushing Meadows. Last year's surprise champion, Bianca Andreescu, joined TC Live to discuss her whirlwind season in 2019, in which she jumped from 178 to 5th in the rankings. She won Indian Wells, the Rogers Cup, in her native Canada, of course, and then the U.S. Open. All of that before she turned 20. Here's Andreescu with Tracy Austin and Steve Weissman talking about that dream season, the idea of merging the ATP and WTA tours, and much more on the TC Live podcast. We are so excited to welcome in Bianca Andreescu, uh, one of the true young superstars of our game. Obviously, no tennis for a while, BB. Uh, what's it been like for you? What have you been up to? Yeah, it's definitely not easy. I'm trying to stay as motivated as I can. I've been working really hard in my mini gym at home. That's basically all I can do right now. And um, spending a lot of time with my family, this is a very good time to take advantage of that. Um, playing some Xbox, uh, reading a lot, and just staying as productive as I can. And how do you feel about uh, the momentum created yesterday by Roger and Rafa talking about the possibility of the ATP and the WTA tours coming together as one? You like that? Yeah, honestly, I do. And uh, I think it's going to be a good thing for the sport. It's definitely a positive opportunity for tennis um, to take a leadership position in something like this. And it'll definitely get tennis more unified and I know Billie Jean has been advocating for this for a while now and I've always had her back on it. I think uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your knee because the last time we saw you was in the WTA finals in October. You had to retire uh, against Pliskova and we all want to know how's your knee doing? Is it close to 100%? Yeah, so I was initially supposed to play Indian Wells, um, but then something happened in practice and we thought maybe it was better to just wait for Miami instead. Um, And I think I would have been ready for Miami. So it's just bad luck, I would say, um, that all of this started during that time because I've been working really hard in uh, December, January and February, and I was really looking forward to getting back on court. But I'm just taking this time to, I guess, fully, fully heal my knee if it wasn't fully healed already, Um, even though I think it was. But I'm just trying to look for the positives in all of this. Yeah. And you talked about the fact that 
so much of your mental toughness comes from really thinking about what you needed to do on the court. You spent a little bit of time doing that every morning and that helped you win the U.S. Open. Can you do something like that? Talk to talk to us about how that really helped you and you envision yourself actually being at the U.S. Open and winning. And maybe you can use that a little bit in this time off as well. Yeah, so what I used to uh, to do that is called creative visualization. You basically picture yourself in a moment in the future of what you want a certain moment to look like. And for me, that was to win the U.S. Open. And I've been visualizing that since I was 15 or 16. And it's it's funny because I wrote myself a check and I literally wrote myself a check for the year 2019. So that's just mind boggling to me. And that just shows you how effective this technique is. Um, but the key is to actually feel yourself in that situation in the future, which I think is the tough part of it, but I've been doing it for a long time. So that's really been helping. And right now, I've been, since I can't really hit balls, I've been visualizing myself hitting and just back in competition and just imagining that this is all going to go away and just staying as grateful as I can to just of the little things like being with family and having a home, having food on the table, I think really helps you get through this time a bit easier. That's such a great perspective, and that mental vision board uh, is really uh, impressive beyond your years, Bianca, uh, and, it, and it really has impressed everybody in the tennis world. We've had Andy Roddick on the show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, former U.S. Open champion and Hall of Famer, and he was asked who his favorite player is to watch right now. Take a listen to this. Uh, I, I, Andrescu, I know she's been hurt. She is exciting to watch, Bianca Andrescu. I, I loved watching her um last summer uh she she kind of brings you in it's like she makes it a little bit of a street fight she's happy she's sad she's angry you cannot know anything about tennis and 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 tune into her and feel like you know what's going on feel like you're recognizing uh someone doing really outstanding things she's one of my favorites what's your reaction to hearing that well i watched it a bit earlier uh i think when it when uh it actually came out, um, but I was in awe. Like I've watched him play growing up, and I remember he was just so different than everyone else. And the thing that stood out were definitely his press conferences. He was super funny and very engaging. But coming from a legend like him is just incredible. And he does have a point uh, about like all the emotions and like you don't know what you're gonna get. But I think. That's just what makes me, me, and um, I'm going to keep doing me. Bianca, I want to take you back to 2019. That's going to be very pleasurable. You started the year outside the top 60, and, of course, you won Indian Wells. You won the Rogers Cup, was just about 10 minutes away from where you live, so that had to be so special. But take us to the U.S. Open, and that is a big jump up to win your first major and to beat Serena Williams in the finals, how did you draw that confidence? Where did you draw that confidence from so quickly in just nine months? Big change. I don't think it started just 
nine months prior, I think it was just a buildup of everything I've done leading up to that moment, like all the hard work, all the visualization. I mean, I told you I, I, I started doing um, started doing that um, at the age of 15, like visualizing that moment. And I think it's just that entire buildup and definitely uh, the thing that really gave me a boost was that tournament in Auckland where um, I beat a couple top players. And I think that's what really skyrocketed me, that skyrocketed me to do very well in 2019. And then it was just like build up, build up, build up after that. And the confidence after my injury was definitely not as high as I wanted to. But going into the Rogers Cup, I had no pressure whatsoever because I was coming back from that long injury. So I think Rogers Cup definitely helped me to perform well at the U.S. Open. Uh, that was, I think that was key. I remember at one point during uh, that whole run that year, you said you forgot how to lose. I mean, you had more wins than anyone on the WTA Tour. And then at the end of the U.S. Open, Tracy, uh, you were there as well. Former champion, two-time You got Martina, you got Tracy, you got Billie Jean there, B. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, that was such an amazing moment for me. Um, I heard, Tracy, that you wanted, you wanted to give me my trophy. I did. I wanted, you know, I picked you to win the title on TV uh, about three days the before the tournament even started. So I had watched every match, obviously, at Indian Wells, had covered the finals there, everyone in Canada as well. And I just, I, I'm like Andy Roddick. You're my favorite to watch. <laughs> I love your variety. I love your emotion out there and just the athleticism. So I, I picked you to win. I was, it was a pleasure to give you the trophy. You were spectacular. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that coming from you. Um, and hopefully we can have more moments like that in the future. We certainly hope to. We hope to get tennis back on the courts soon, as long as it is safe and healthy. Uh, B, we hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks so much for taking a little bit of time and joining us today on Tennis Channel Live. Thank you. Always a pleasure. In the last decade, nobody in American tennis has been a bigger mainstay and I use that term both figuratively and literally, than John Isner. The tall North Carolina native has been known for his thumping serve and his consistent results on tour, finishing in the top 20 every single year from 2010 to 2019. Isner joined TC Live with Prakash Armitrage and Steve Weissman to update everyone on how he's handling the hiatus from tennis, his plans for the 2021 Olympics, and even a little NFL draft talk. As we welcome the top-ranked American man, John Isner, along with Prakash here on TC Live. John, it is great to see you. How are you doing? A uh, little time off, more time to spend with the family. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we all have this, you know, forced time off right now. And for us tennis players, um, it's a weird situation to be in, no doubt. But, you know, you have to, you have to make the most of this time. And for me, spending a lot of time with my family and know a lot of time at home uh, which is sort of nice because as you know we travel so much it's nice to be home and, and be present with the family as much as i possibly can john i got a question man look we're obviously also regimented on the road you know being athletes and so forth now we're at home during this quarantine time it's kind of tough to find a sense of normalcy and like a routine what is what does your daily day look like right now 
Yeah, well, look, I'm I'm training. Uh, I haven't been hitting many balls, but I'm lifting uh, as much weights as I can. I'm able to get into a gym. Uh, I have weights at my home for one, and I can get into a gym by myself and, and work out. And on top of that, I'm I'm riding the bike a lot. I have I have two bikes at home when it's really hot uh, in Dallas. I wheel it outside in my backyard and uh, break in good sweat that way. And I, and I also have a Peloton as well. So for me, you know, I just I've always needed to keep myself in really good shape, and I'm using this time right now to to try to get I guess fully healthy and really really strong. Have you managed to hit any tennis balls, or are you kind of using this period just to take a break from swinging the racket? I've hit a few times. Uh, I've practiced uh, with my wife, Maddie, uh, a handful of times. We're actually about to go hit here in about 30, 45 minutes. Of course, we, we go to, a, we go to a, a friend's house who, um, who has a court and get out in the sun, get some vitamin D. But I really think I'm going to start ramping, up, ramping it up um, you know, in May. Obviously, the best-case scenario for our season is to start – in mid-July, so I'm going to plan as if that's the case and try to get myself ready for that. Obviously, John, no sports during this time, any sports. I mean, you're a huge sports fan. You got Georgia football. You got the Carolina Panthers, Carolina Hurricanes, all, all this stuff, nothing to watch right now. How are you handling the lack of sports in your life? <laughs> I tell you what, it's, it's, it's been tough. Uh, I'm trying to read. Um, <laughs> Watching Netflix, which I generally don't do because the TV always has always has sports on. This time of year is my favorite time of year because I'm generally always home. Right now in late April, the NBA playoffs are on, the NHL playoffs are on, and I try to you know get as much sports at, that I can watch on TV before I go to Europe. But as you know, we're all without that now. Um, you know it, we. We all miss sports a lot, and everyone wants us to get back uh, to, to a uh, sense of normalcy here where you can watch that on TV and us tennis players can get on the court and play. All right, you always use that hashtag, keep pounding, like the Carolina Panthers, John. They've got the seventh pick in the draft. Who are they taking? Why? And uh, tell us <laughs> maybe a little insight into how you could be participating in that draft. Well, yeah, I've become good friends with Jordan Gross, who's a former uh, tackle for the Panthers for a long time, and he he works for the team. So he asked me, I got got my dog here. <laughs> oh, um, he he asked me to uh, if I wanted to participate on a on a Skype call during the first round. So we haven't ironed out the details yet, but it looks like I'm I'm going to do that. I guess they're trying to get a lot of. I don't consider myself a celebrity, but I know Steph Curry is going to do it as well, and he's a he's a pretty big name, so. I'm glad to be uh, a part of that. So I think that's going to be cool. But seventh pick, we'll see what they do. I'd like to see them take, you know, the best player available. I've, if I was drafting, that's what I would do. And I'd love to see the wide receiver from Alabama come to town, Jerry Judy. But it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. They might go with that defensive tackle from Auburn. So uh, we'll see what happens. John, obviously with, you know, football, and I know you're a wrestling fan as well, and you were so – Amazing in college tennis. You're a huge atmosphere guy. Now, you played yeah. in front of some incredible crowds. Uh, what are your thoughts on possibly coming back and maybe having to play at least for a portion of the tour without any, any spectators in the stands? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. You do, did mention I'm a, I'm a big wrestling fan. And I'll tell you one thing, watching WrestleMania with no fans in the crowd was 
very, very weird. I mean, when you watch WrestleMania, you, you, it's always a huge spectacle, excuse me, and they were going to have 75,000 fans there, and they had none. And they're, you know, doing it inside their little training and reading arena in Orlando. But if that's the case, uh, all of us players are going to be ready for it. Of course, it's going to be different. But I'd rather play with no fans than, than not play at all. Um, of course, that the day will come when we can get our great fans back into the stadiums and we can play in front of some great atmospheres, but that might not be for a while. Rather play with no fans than not play at all. The sentiments of John Isner here. And, John, uh, obviously the Olympics were postponed until next year. You have been ranked in the top 20 in the world 10 straight years. I don't think enough people give you credit for that. Still the top-ranked American man and going. Uh, would the Summer Olympics fit into your schedule in 2021? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know yet. Of course, I mean, it's a huge bummer to see that the 2020 games got pushed back a year, but it, it was the right call. There's no doubt about that. As you know, the, the, the tennis schedule is, is slam-packed, and I love playing in the summer uh, in, in the United States. So I'm going to cross that bridge when it comes. I haven't really thought about the 2021 Olympics right now. Uh, that's something that as it gets closer, maybe once uh, you know this year starts coming to an end, I, I will be thinking about that. But as of right now, I, I can't give you a, a definitive answer on that. John, we've seen so many changes and there's been so many challenges for so many people at all different ends of the spectrum. But uh, Novak has uh, brought up a really interesting idea, an initiative to be able to put together some funding with the tournaments and with the players for the ones that really need it. What are, what are your thoughts on, on what he's proposed? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on the player council. So we were all on a uh, conference call uh, when that idea was uh, proposed and it's something that the majority of players ranked in the top 100 uh, approve of and it's something that we're all happy to do and I think Novak should get a lot of credit for for really uh, leading the charge on this and of course Roger and Rafa as well to have those three guys on the 10 man player council on our side is very very cool so uh, look we're, we're trying to iron out all the details course we're trying to get the money from the tournament side from the grand slam side as well and we're trying to create a fund that can help the, the players who are uh, really struggling during this time because uh you know of course guys like novak and roger and rafa they're, they're doing just fine but we all realize that the tour is more than just a handful of players and we got to help everyone out well john it is absolutely fantastic Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. To see you stay healthy, stay safe, give our best to the family, and uh, enjoy that hit with Maddie later this afternoon. All right. Thanks, guys. I love John. Few have left a bigger mark on sports in general than Billie Jean King, who's truly earned and embodied the title of living legend. At the U.S. Open, she's deservedly considered royalty with four singles titles and having the National Tennis Center named after her in 2006. 
On Monday, she chatted with Chanda Rubin and Steve Weissman about how the center is being used to treat victims of the COVID-19 pandemic, the plans to help lower-ranked players financially, and what she's currently working on. Here's the one and only Billie Jean King on the TC Live podcast. Billie Jean King won the U.S. Open singles title four times, doubles title five times, mixed title four times, and joins us once again here on Tennis <laughs> Channel Live. It is so great to have you on the show, Billie Jean. Uh, how did you Thank first you. find out that the National Tennis Center in Queens was going to be named in your honor? Well, the president of the USTA, Franklin Johnson, called me during a team tennis match. It was really noisy at the Freedoms in Philly, so I had to find a space I could hear him because uh, it was close and everybody's getting excited. So I said, wait a minute, I got to go in the president's house and then I can talk to you. And he told me, and I didn't, I, the first time he told me, I got, I didn't think he was, I didn't understand what he was telling me. I didn't. And then he told me again and I went, oh, wow. And then I was speechless. I mean, then I just had all these thoughts uh, coming through my head, like all the people that helped me in the parks and uh, my parents, just, you know, my brother, just, flooding into my brain and then the night of the night uh that we're actually they did the naming was an amazing uh, night I'll, I'll never forget it you know uh, diana ross was there and and uh, started it off and then uh, you know chris and chrissy ever and john McEnroe and venus williams and jimmy connors all talk mary carrillo was the mc the mayor was there my mom was there, uh, Ilana was there. I mean, a lot of my friends, um, but it was an amazing night. Um, I'll never forget it. And, you know, everything I thought about was, you know, hopefully I champion the people, I'm the people's champion and I'm a park and rec kid. Um, and so I hope uh, I can live up to it every day. Well, Billy, so well-deserved. But I wonder, you know, as you go back to the U.S. Open each year, I mean, for so many of us, you know, it's a special feeling just walking onto the grounds, uh, being an American, the electricity of, of, the, of the stadium, of the grounds, of the people, of the city. How is it for you now going back to the U.S. Open year after year with the center being named in your honor? Well, every time I walk in there, I look up there and I see my name, I go, <gasps> and then I... I I like seeing Arthur's name, you know, on the stadium and Louis Armstrong's on his because um, they mean a lot to me as well in my life. Uh, and uh, it's so exciting because, you know, before where we are now, we were in Forest Hills and things were much smaller. And in 1978, we went to where we are now. And, and it just keeps growing and accommodating more people. And thanks to Mayor Dinkins, we have it in New York. Uh, so it's, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to see how much better tennis has gotten over the generations? Well, you know, we've learned in, in recent weeks that the center will be used as a temporary hospital. What did you feel? What did you think when you heard that news? I was very proud that uh, we could have this hospital um, and help others and, you know, with the meals and also the overflow of uh, people that didn't have COVID-19 because they were just so overwhelmed. So, it's great that the National Tennis Center and the USTA and, and everyone, the tennis family, could contribute uh, in that way. So it's amazing how they've used that. They use it for graduations. They use it for this uh, hospital. They use it for so many things, and it really does belong to the public. 
That's a great point, Billie Jean. It's, it's the people's center uh, because it's being used for everything. Uh, one thing, a lot of people struggling right now financially, that's tennis players, too. And the ATP, Novak Djokovic and company, uh, they've made a plan to try and help players rank 250 to 700, get them some extra funds. How do you think the WTA should approach helping to fund some of those lower-ranked players? I know the WTA is working on that right now. I know that they've been working a lot together. The great thing right now is that every tennis entity, whether it's the ATP, WTA, ITF, whether it's the national um, organizations like the USTA, everyone is truly working together. And everyone knows that the lower ranking players have a challenge. And uh, some money has gone out to the players, um, but we need to think about more. And, I'm, and the people that drive that are the top players because they have the big bucks, they have the money. Uh, it's really important for them to step up, I think. And uh, I know they're working on it, and I know the ATP is working on it, but the WTA is definitely um, addressing it. Well, Billy, you've advocated for teams throughout your career, throughout your life, founding you know, World Team Tennis, you know, focusing on that aspect as much as possible. What opportunities do you see for the ATP, the WTA to come together, all of the, the tennis governing bodies to come together during this time and even beyond? Where do you see those opportunities? I think, Chanda, what you said is beyond, and that's what this is a good time to reset and to have one voice in the sport, which we've really never had. We need that desperately. Uh, I hope that we'll all work together more after uh, COVID-19 uh, situation calms down. Um, but you're absolutely right. We need to be one voice. We need to work together. Uh, maybe someday, and I didn't think this was possible, we might have a commissioner. I don't know. Um, but we need to work together. We're, uh, not, we're not the biggest sport in the world. Uh, we don't have as much money, say, as soccer or, or other sports. So we need to stick together, and everyone needs to help each other. The, the thing that's also good is that, that uh, it shows the inequities that go on. Uh, so this is a good time to, to um, reset and think about how we want our sport to look uh, in the future. And what can we do to make it better, stronger, and more uh, secure and the one thing about COVID-19, this going through this experience, I told you, I think I talked earlier about how it reminded me of the old days when we didn't have opportunities. This is a chance, this is a really good chance to have a new normal for tennis. Well, all sports are struggling with this question, but when do you think would be the right time to return to tennis, to professional tennis? I think that the virus is going to dictate that and whatever that is, because safety and health comes first because health is wealth. Yeah, you always say that and you could you're spot on. Health is your wealth, Billie Jean. Um, we know that the National Tennis Center in Queens is named after you. There's a, a whole plethora of facilities and libraries and, and all sorts of things named in your honor. Uh, what's next? What would you like the next thing to be? Uh, the Billie Jean King blank. Are you kidding? I don't think about that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I have, I, I'm very fortunate, but the one thing about me is I think everybody thinks of me as a team player, a team person. I grew up in team sports. I love team. I, I love, um, you know, I love playing White and Cup when we had that and I'm not done yet. So I don't know, but I don't, that's not what's important. What's important is what are we doing? Like the next thing we're working on virtually is the 
Long Beach li Main Library Fund. Uh, that library is new in Long Beach, California, where I grew up and my younger brother grew up and uh, Long Beach made us, the people of Long Beach. And so if I can give back any way to Long Beach, California, I am. And one of the first things we're doing is a fundraiser uh, for the Long Beach Main uh, Library that just, um, I know they're using my name now, but um, you know, we have 12 branches in Long Beach and we have all the rec courts. That's where Randy and I, you know, without recreation uh, parks, Randy and I would have never had our careers. My brother played 12 years of professional baseball. But because we had free access, that's everything to young people. So uh, we want to help the next generations. Uh, it's all really about the next generations, always pushing, pushing to create opportunities because you, 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 don't, you don't know, you just don't know. If we don't push now, it won't happen. Um, and it's been proven through history that every generation has to really step up for the next generations. Absolutely. And who knows, maybe you could be that voice that brings everybody together and takes us into that next step in the tennis world. Uh, Billie Jean King, legend, Hall of Famer, it is always wonderful to see your face and have you here on Tennis Channel Live. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks, Chanda. Now for something you might not expect on a podcast about tennis. This great sport attracts fans from all walks of life, which we all know. But that also includes those in the entertainment industry. For over 20 years, actor Paul Wesley has been a consistent figure in television and movies, most notably as a star on the show, The Vampire Diaries. But did you know he's a self-proclaimed tennis nerd? Wesley stopped by TC Live to chat with Steve Weissman about his tennis fandom, his great experiences attending the U.S. Open, and his budding friendship with Gail Monfils. It's Paul Wesley on the TC Live podcast. Paul Wesley in Tell Me a Story, season two, also starring in The Vampire Diaries. We now welcome actor Paul Wesley to Tennis Channel Live. It's great to have you here on the program. Uh, I'm going to start by having you tell me a story. How did you fall in love with the sport of tennis? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I'm a new tennis fanatic, and I, and I really am a a genuine tennis fanatic, not like a, a phony tennis fanatic. But it's I'd say the 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 addiction hit me in the last two years. Uh, I, I met uh, Gaio Monfils uh, through friends. We became buddies uh, and uh, I started following his matches. Um, and then I just it went from like following every one of his matches to watching every single match. Then it went to like becoming a fanatic and waking up at three in the morning. Uh, to watch the matches that were, you know, taking place in Europe or the Middle East. And I just, uh, I, I got hit with the bug, man. I just love it. I just love it. You're, you're just like us, Paul. Uh, so, Malfis, obviously one of the most creative, athletic, incredible players on a tennis court. Uh, what goes through your mind when you see these highlights? I mean, yeah, it's wild. You know, the, the thing about Gael that I just uh, respect so much is, A, uh, he's just an unbelievable um athlete right like you could imagine that guy playing any sport and pretty much excelling uh and then on top of that his his sportsmanlike conduct like he's he's always a good guy he always has a smile he's always in a good mood and i just think setting an example like having so much pressure uh playing in front of thousands and thousands of people with millions watching and being able to like have fun and and play with the audience and just and have a good time and also be in the top 10 right now is just uh, it's it's incredibly commendable. He's also like one of the nicest guys uh, I've ever met. Yeah, it is, it is always a pleasure to see Gal play. Uh, you've been to a lot of tournaments. You've been to the U.S. Open four times. Roland Garros, Indian Wells. You were at the U.S. Open last year. What stood out to you about that final between Nadal and Medvedev? 
Oh, man. Uh, for me, I think the biggest sort of the thing for, that I sort of recognize, and I had seen Nadal, I think maybe, or maybe it was my second time seeing Nadal, but ultimately what was so incredible is that Medvedev caught this like wind and he really had this energy and the crowd always kind of wants the, the underdog to win in a way, even though Nadal's, you know, one of the most adored players in the world. But they started to go towards Medvedev. Everyone was kind of rooting for Medvedev, and he had been the bad boy of that U.S. Open. And then suddenly Nadal just took the energy of the crowd, absorbed it, and just kept pumping himself up and just turned the tide. And then I realized, like, that's what it takes to be Rafa Nadal. You know, that's why he is Nadal. He just did this, like, superhuman thing. We're here on Tennis Channel Live with actor Paul Wesley. You talk about what it takes to be Rafa Nadal, one of the greatest tennis players in the history of the sport. What does it take to be a great actor? What similarities do you see between acting and being a tennis player? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, for me, I think that's, I think, you know, subconsciously that's why I gravitated so much towards tennis because it's obviously tremendously physical athleticism but i do think 50 percent of it is is psychological and it's about and it's a one-on-one -on -one sport and i i feel like acting in a way you're not it's not a competition but it is a a, a mental endurance it's 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 a game of like trying to persevere and not uh, overthink and use your instinct and you know ride and energy and I, when i watch tennis it's it's such an it's an art form to me um i'm like you know not, to, not i love sports but like when i watch you know basketball or football it's just not the same because it's a team effort this is like purely psychological one-on-one -on -one warfare and for me i feel that way sometimes you know if i'm going out there and i, I like i've done a few plays in new york city and i i really feel like it's resting on my shoulders and it's live and there's something there's it's an enthralling feeling but it's also it can be heady you know which when you, you see that you see players get heady and you see actors get heady absolutely i mean at least 90 percent mental i mean so much is up in the head and that's why the big three have done what they've done for so long uh you got you're rocking the beard right now paul during during the quarantine times uh reminds us a little bit of another French player, Benoit Paire. We're going to throw up a photo of Benoit. What do you think of yes. this? I, I think Benoit Paire looks so much better than me because he's clearly groomed his beard. He's got the popped collar. I'm like full quarantine. I have no, there's no grooming. Uh, my wife looks at me like with, you know, every day she's in shock as to, and she, I'm just going to keep it going. I'm going to keep this thing going. And I hope to one day groom it and look as good as Benoit Paire. Can you do that face for us so we can see it side by side? With <laughs> there we go. I think I, I see it. I see, I see a little Benoit Paire in you, Paul. Thank you. Merci. <laughs> Merci I have to smash my racket, though, right? You do. You have to break it into pieces, all, all of the rackets. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure having you here. You can see Paul. Uh, tell me a story. CBS All Access. Uh, stay safe and healthy and continue to watch Tennis Channel during this time off, and uh, hopefully we'll see you on a court soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, really, really exciting for me to be here. There are several highly touted young players in the game, and on Friday, Tennis Channel Live was delighted to be joined by one of them. 18-year-old Ohio native Katie McNally made the third round of last year's U.S. Open, where she even took a set-off eventual finalist, Serena Williams. No big deal. Her game continues to improve, and her doubles tandem with Coco Goff is having a lot of success and a lot of fun. Seriously, just check out those post-match celebrations and tell me otherwise. McNally joined Tracy Austin and Steve Weissman to discuss that U.S. Open experience last season.
playing with Coco, and trying to stay active at home. We welcome Katie McNally to Tennis Channel Live. And who do you have there, Katie? Uh, I have my dog, Stella. <laughs> All right, so we, we got a little doubles pair. Uh, how have you been handling uh, this downtime, obviously, with coronavirus not being able to play tennis? And what type of training have you been able to do? Yeah, it's definitely been very different. I think it's been different for, obviously, everyone around the world. Um, for me, I'm just trying to control the controllables and for, um, get as much exercise in as possible. I'm um, super grateful that my grandparents have a court and they only live about 10 minutes away. So me and my brother and my mom can go there pretty much whenever we want and get some good practice in. Katie, it's been about six weeks since the tour stopped when Indian Wells was canceled. What was your spring supposed to look like? Where were you going to be playing tournaments? Yeah, it was going to be a huge spring for me. I was really looking forward to it. I was probably going to do the most traveling and play as many tournaments as possible because my age restriction got lifted last uh, November. So I was planning on playing Indian Wells, Miami, and then going over to Europe for probably two months straight to play a, a lot of tournaments on clay and then grass. So it definitely got changed drastically, but, um, you know, it's the same for everyone. And you just got to be positive. And, you know, tennis will come back and, um, yeah. You know, tennis is so big in your family, Katie. I've known your brother, John McNally, since he was a little kid, same age as my son, Brandon, plays at uh, Ohio State, number one there. And your mom, of course, played on the tour. But I want to talk about your game style because your mom, Lynn, has done such a great job of coaching both of you. You're, you know, coming to the net last year at the U.S. Open, winning that first set uh, against Serena, serving and volleying, chipping and charging. It's a different game, and you're so young to already have a complete game. Talk about that and the thought process with your family. Yeah, I'm super grateful for my mom for, you know, bringing my – me and my brother up that way. Um, she taught us every zone of the court. She taught us swinging volleys, volleys, you know, hitting returns and coming in, serving and volleying. And that's been a huge aspect of my game um, throughout my career. And I think when I'm playing my best tennis is actually when I'm doing all of that. And Kevin O'Neill, who also travels and coaches me, um, encourages that 100%. So, you know, everyone's on the same page. And I think that's super helpful for a player. Katie, I want to take you back to that match against Serena because you certainly didn't look like a teenager. You looked like you felt like you belonged out there. You got the first set. You didn't look surprised. What was going through your mind? Were you nervous or were you totally confident? I knew after I won my first round match that I was going to play the winner of the So I knew that I was the night match probably um you know two days away so i was actually really looking forward to it um i got to hit on arthur ash um two mornings before the match so that was helpful you know it's definitely a lot different um going out there with no fans to going out there playing night match but i'm just proud of the way i handled myself you know obviously i didn't i didn't win the match but um i think i showed what i'm capable of doing in front of all those people 
Uh, it was awesome. Uh, you could tell you had that swagger just going, getting the, the fans to come up for you there, Katie. Uh, back to the City Open before the U.S. Open, obviously making the semifinals in singles, but you also won the doubles title with your friend Coco Goff. You all had only played one tournament before then, which was the U.S. Open Juniors. What makes you all such a good team? Yeah, Coco and I have amazing chemistry. i um, super thankful for her as a partner and just as a friend off the court, but um, yeah, Junior U.S. Open was our first tournament together. I don't think we dropped a set the whole tournament. And then because of the age restrictions and all the WTA rules that, you know, are in place, we couldn't really play together for a while. But D.C. was our first tournament uh, playing as a team, you know, at the pro level. And uh, it was unbelievable. So much support in D.C. Kind of felt like we were at home and just no nothing but good, good memories from there. Now, I want to take you back to D.C. for the singles because it's a big deal to get to the semis of a pro event. And that kind of must have really opened your eyes and dismissed any doubts or some question marks when you're making that transition from the juniors to the pros. How important was that tournament for you mentally? Yeah, it was obviously huge. I mean, I got my first WTA main draw win there. So that obviously I think that's always in the back of people's head as much as you try to push it away. It's always going to be there. So, um yeah, I'm just happy that I could put some really good matches together, beat some really good players and show everyone what I'm capable of doing um, out on a big stage like that against the best in the world. And DC, I just, I actually just love it there. Um, you know, only good memories, like I said, and I uh, can't wait to go back. And Katie, with the with the quarantine, with the downtime, people and tennis players are getting a little frustrated. So they're coming up with some creative ways to play inside. Take us through some of your tweeners. Um, yeah, so what I've been doing when I can't... Oh, yeah, there's that video. That's funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I better already did the challenge, actually, but I wanted him to redo it just doing tweeners the whole time. But he obviously didn't tweet back at me, but it's it's okay. Um, he's got a couple people tweeting at him. Um, this, but, this yeah, hitting a lot work, of Katie. I know. Um, <laughs> doing a lot of TikToks in my free time, so... <laughs> I know you're a big sports fan. The whole family is. You're, you're a Bengals fan. Cincinnati, what do you think of the pick of Joe Burrow? Oh, yeah, we're pumped. Cincinnati is really looking forward to having him. He's an amazing quarterback, and uh, I can't wait to see what he does for our city. You have not seen a playoff win in your lifetime, so maybe Burrow can get you that. Um, yeah. Our, our – our best to you and your family. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Stella as well. And thanks for taking some time to join us here on TC Live. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast having Andy Roddick as a contributor on Tennis Channel Live, as he's able to break the game down and give opinions that are expert level and very, very funny. The U.S. Open is the major where Roddick achieved his biggest career accomplishment, winning his long Grand Slam title there in 2003. It's also where he said goodbye to the game he loved playing his final career match at Flushing Meadows in 2012. The final segment of the TC Live podcast is Andy Roddick explaining both of those moments, the highest of highs in sports, and the final act in a standout athletic career. I went to this tournament since I was eight years old. Um, you know, so it, it was, it was, it, it meant a lot. I mean, it's kind of a, a lifelong dream. Um, that day, I don't really remember much from, from finals day. And I think there was a certain advantage. I finished the, the five-setter against Nalbanyan uh, at night. 
like 8 or 9 p.m. Uh, the Saturday and then had to come back and play at 4 o'clock on the Sunday. And I actually think there was some sort of advantage to not actually have time to process what was happening. There wasn't the day off in between where all I had to do was sit around and think about it. Uh, I actually think it was beneficial for uh, my first slam final to be such a quick turnaround where all I was thinking of was getting treatment, getting food, getting to bed, getting some sleep, waking up, warming up, and then you're on. Uh, some way, somehow, I think that was uh, was beneficial. Take us through the X's and O's for that match. Break down what you needed to do. What was the game plan? Yeah, so uh, it, it was it was strange because uh, that morning, and, and this is a rarity if you know Brad well, uh, that morning, uh, Brad Gilbert wasn't really saying that much. Um, and he, I think he wanted to keep the pacing quasi-normal. Uh, and then it, we hadn't really talked too much about the match. And then uh, he go, right before I was going to go out, he gave me a fist pound. He goes, you're a heavyweight. Impose your will on this guy. And so that, in my mind, you know, it, the way he said it, knowing him well enough, that basically just meant go out and, and, and beat him down. You know, the, the one kind of area that I have as an advantage over Juan Carlos Ferrero is being able to put power on the ball, serving him off the court, playing aggressively. Uh, probably every other facet he's better or he was better than than I was. So uh, it was it was very clear. It was very simple. And that probably worked well, too. Andy, let's talk about your road to that final match. You had one of the most spectacular summers we've seen. You were so great in Cincinnati, so great in Montreal. You won some fairly comfortable matches early on leading up to that Nalbandian match. You dropped a set there, I think, against Lubacic. But what were, what were your thoughts in that Nalbandian match? You were down two sets to love. But if I remember correctly, I think you snuck out some tight ones earlier in the summer against Fishy and Cincy, Roger in Canada. Yeah. What, was your, what was your thought process like? I mean, I was match tough. So even down two sets against Nalbandian, I knew and the, and the crowd just wanted an excuse to, to go nuts. Uh, they had just watched Andre uh, get beat by Ferrero. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, there was a significant advantage to being an American, especially with Andre out. They, they kind of needed me to get to the final. Uh, so I, I knew that and I knew if I could turn it uh, in a breaker, anything could really happen. Uh, there was a, a call in the fifth set that I, 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 I ended up breaking Nalbanian there in the fifth set. And uh, let's just say I was really happy that there wasn't shot spot at that moment in time. Uh, the, the other thing that, that was a huge stress point for me going into that tournament, because that's probably the only event that I ever felt like I was the favorite, right? You know, they're, 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 I was seated one in Australia next year, but Roger was probably the favorite. I felt like I was the guy to beat going into that event for probably the only time in my career. But uh, the only guy I had lost to that entire summer was – was Tim Henman and he was coming back. And so he wasn't seated. And so I was super stressed out that entire practice week because the draw came out and all of a sudden I'm playing Henman first round, who I is the only guy I'd lost to uh, since Wimbledon. And I think I'd won three or four or five events or something like that going in. And then second round was Lubacic who, you know, ended up being three in the world. So I'm going, Oh my gosh, I do all this work. And what's my, uh, what's my reward early in the U S open Henman followed by Lubacic. That was stressful. Thankfully, uh, it got a little bit easier till that Nelbanian match. Well, you got the title. You got to hold up the trophy. Where do you put that trophy now? Where is it in the house? <laughs> Actually, I, I was doing a podcast the other day, and someone said, show it to me. It's literally on the floor in the back corner of, of the office, like tucked out of the way. I had to like move some stuff to get it out. So it's, <laughs> it's not really on display, but it's, it's there. It's a jolt of emotion. I don't, I don't watch stuff in the rear view very often. So that was uh, – that was telling. Um, it, it's it's so weird. It, it seems like uh, a long time ago uh, already. Um, you know, and, and tennis is is not a, a huge part of my day to day operation now. So 
Um, it, it really was brutal because, you know, it's something that you've done since you're five years old. And, you know, it's always there in some context and it's given me everything I've, I've, I've had in this in this life. But you are closing a chapter uh, of your life. So um, it, it's it's emotional and especially at the open. I mean, I have so many memories there and I was there as a kid. And, um, you know, it's 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 strange looking back at it. Most of us are lucky enough that you retire when the boss says you got to go or your firm has a policy. It's not like that in sports. You were ranked 22 at the time, not where you wanted to be necessarily, but there are only 21 people in the world that do your job better than you did yours. How did you arrive at that decision to retire, given where you were? Um, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I woke up one morning and, uh, you know, shoulder was hurting a little bit and, uh, I was already nervous about a match that was two days away. Um, you know, I had already played my first round at the U S open and, um, I, I kind of just went through a, a little, a little bit of a checklist. Um, you know, I was ranked 22, but I was trending the right direction. I had won two out of my last five events. I'd, uh, you know, been battling injury a little bit earlier that year. So, um, I still felt like I was, you know, capable of playing top 10 or 15 tennis. Um, but does that get you to where you want to go as far as winning a slam? Um, I, I felt like it was uphill sledding. Uh, I, I, I've referenced actually on the show, just taking an absolute beating from Novak at the Olympics when I felt like I was actually playing pretty well. And that was on grass on a court. I felt good on, um, that was telling. And, and, and as soon as I lost the belief that I could go best of five sets over the course of two weeks, be healthy and go through uh, murderer's row of, uh, of legends, um, the game felt like work to me. And it, 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 I had never treated it that way. I, I had gone about it as if it was a job, but it never felt like work. We're all watching this Michael Jordan documentary, greatest player of all time and twice he retired and then thought better of it in tennis all the time. And Kim Kleisters is just the latest example of many. To what extent did you ever have an itch in 2013 or 2014 to say, you know, this was nap time. I'm, I'm back out there. What extent did you have to, uh, to think about unretiring, as we say? Yeah, I, uh, I, I never once got out on the court and said, well, I'm going to you know, practice for two weeks and see how I feel. I, I never once did that. Um, I, I think I was lucky. I think I had, uh, you know, foundation responsibilities that I was really excited to dive into. Uh, I, I think I had different business opportunities that I was already in and certainly want, was curious to, to, to do more on that front. Um, you know, so I, I think the, the, the real thing is I never really woke up uh, bored. Um, you know, and, and Kim Kleisters, if you've seen her play at all over the last however many years, she still plays great. Uh, at, at no point was I going, OK, I've, I've been on the sidelines for two years. I definitely have a better chance now of unseating these guys that are still dominating than I did two years ago. You know, it, it just didn't make sense to me. I didn't think, uh, you know, once you kind of lose the upside of the ultimate prize, uh, for me, that was that was that. You were you were running the Invesco series, though. I mean, just the ruler of the land. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually found my uh, I found my sweet spot there. It was is basically I'm dominant if I play people that are 20 years old. <laughs> Whatever works. And that's going to do it for this week's TC Live podcast. Big thanks to all the guests who made appearances. Bianca Andrescu, Billie Jean King, Katie McNally, John Isner. The list goes on and on. Thanks to everybody in front of the camera and behind it for all their hard work. And a reminder that you can catch every TC Live podcast episode on the Tennis Podcast Network and on all your podcast platforms as well. In two weeks, there'll be the Australian Open show. That's going to be a good one. The last five years, 2016 to 2020 recapping all the big moments of the 
major champions, the storylines, you name it, and a lot to break down, a lot of topical news as we get ready for the resumption of the tennis season. I'm Mitch Michaels, and this was the TC Live Podcast, U.S. Open Week. We'll see you next time.